Hello, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm Ravi Balakrishnan, the Chief European Economist. And with me today, I have other members of our Western European teams, Raphael Brun Aguirre, a senior Euro area economist, Greg Fazetzi, our chief Euro area economist, Morton Lunt, our chief Scandinavian economist, and Alan Muggs, our chief UK economist. We're here to talk about the outlook for Western Europe, for which we have published various pieces over the last two weeks. Let me summarize some of our key views before we take a deeper dive into some of the issues. 2023 has been a mixed bag. An energy crisis and major recessions were avoided over the winter, demonstrating the resilience of many, European, of many Western European economies. But growth has been disappointing since the spring. Inflation has come down considerably, but core services and wage inflation remain above comfort zones, especially so in the UK and Sweden when it comes to services inflation. When compared to the US, private consumption has been the main source of weakness as overall investment has remained reasonably solid, in particular excluding Ireland, uh, of course, which tends to create a lot of volatility in the investment numbers. The related savings behavior of households in Western Europe remains somewhat of a puzzle, although closeness to the war in Ukraine and the impact that higher energy prices have likely played a role in increasing precautionary saving in, in many Western European countries. For 2024, we generally see tepid growth, but countries will be at different stages of the cycle in our baseline. Sweden is forecast to be recovering from a recession. The UK is expected to enter into a recession, a boiling the frog scenario, as, as we call it, in JP Morgan, while the euro area is projected to have a softish landing. Of course, there are other scenarios we can envisage around this. For example, the risk of a recession certainly remains in the euro area. You could have an earlier one than we currently forecast for the UK. We will discuss some of the implications of these scenarios for central bank policy rate paths in the ensuing discussion. So let's turn to our first issue, the projected softish landing in the euro area. What really underpins this in our, in our forecast? So let me turn to Raphael first. Can you walk us through our projected decline in inflation and what is behind it? Thanks a lot, Ravi. Uh, the first point I think uh, I want to make is that we've um, had some significant uh, progress on inflation, especially core inflation of late, in the sense that we had core inflation running at a 5 to 6% pace towards the, the start of the year. We basically, I mean, over the last few months, running close to 3% AR, potentially below that, uh, based on, on the November flash data. Uh, so a lot of progress. And... Um, I think going forward, we should feel uh, pretty confident uh, about the trajectory, a trajectory that is uh, downward according to to our scenario, um, and and confidence because um, um, there's a different aspects in the inflation dynamics that that are positive. So um, the, the the recent momentum is good, uh, especially in terms of of the core good side. We've seen as well some. Uh, good progress on on the the services part, but the services part is more sticky. Um, now, the way to think about it going forward, we've seen that first leg in terms of core goods price inflation, which uh, is already down by a significant amount. How should we be thinking in terms of uh, services price inflation? Well, services is is very uh, work intensive and and wage matter. Now. We've been trying to model wage inflation um, in the past, and, and we've done a good job in the sense that uh, if you used uh, some, some key metrics, 
uh, into a model, what you'll find is basically um, that it's not the unemployment rate or it's not productivity that matters the most in terms of uh, explaining the, the, the pickup in wage inflation of late. It's effectively consumer price inflation. And the rationale is that because consumer price inflation was high, um, basically the household sector went into negotiation claiming for higher wages, which it got in the end. Now, if you use that model going forward, um, because inflation has declined by a significant amount, you get a sense that wage inflation should decline over the coming quarters. So as a result, the pressure on, on services price inflation declines, and that helps in terms of the uh, returns of core inflation towards targets. I should stress as well um, that um, we get a sense that there is um, the beginning of some easing in terms of labor markets. We can see that in, in the PMI data. We can see it in the unemployment data as well. And we should get as well some comfort from, from the weak uh, demand in terms of the consumer, which basically reduces uh, pricing power on the corporate side. So overall, good progress. And we should see uh, more of a decline in terms of core inflation going forward. We have... Uh, core reaching uh, 3% of year by the spring and uh, something which is close to 2.5% by the end of 2024. Okay, thank you very much, Raphael. That's very helpful. We'll come on to a little bit later, maybe some of the comparisons with UK inflation dynamics and some of the differences. But maybe let me now turn to Greg and talk about the growth outlook. As we noted in various outlooks, there's been... Uh, significant weakness in private consumption in Western Europe, especially um, in comparison to the US. And it's something of a puzzle. Yet it seems that a private consumption pickup underpins the gradual growth pickup in the euro area through 2024. So how confident are we about this part of the outlook? Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I mean, the way I describe the euro area is that at the moment, it's at a bit of a crossroad. Um, there are these two approaches, I think, to forecasting the near-term outlook. One is based on kind of traditional growth drivers. And if you go through those, it's very hard to not get completely depressed. Because if you think about a region that has growth potential only of one, and you say, okay, monetary policy is tight, fiscal policy is tightening, you've got credit that's weak, sentiment that's low, you've got the global backdrop, which is okay, but not, you know, not amazing. Um, it's kind of difficult to see where, you know, where positive drivers are coming from, apart from your baseline of one. And in fact, all of those drivers, if they, if you start with that baseline of one, they're, they're chipping away at it. Um, and then you quickly get into contraction territory. But at the same time, you have these very strange uh, constellations in the data, uh, effectively because of the uh, the shocks that we've had over the last few years, which are unwinding. And that's uh, given you a very strange starting position. Um, you mentioned the consumer. The consumer is pretty much at the forefront of this because you've got a, a very unusual dynamic at the moment where because of the past inflation shock, wage growth is still high. But inflation, as Raphael has said, has declined sharply for other reasons. So the real income side for consumers is really turning sharply. Um, and it's very difficult to say that the economy should be moving into contraction ter territory as the traditional drivers would suggest um, if you've got real incomes growing at you know 2% pace uh, you know for the rest of the year slowing down to perhaps a one and a half percent pace next year which are still very very strong numbers in terms of consumer the challenge of course is uh, you know the fact that we haven't had a pickup yet um, even though real incomes have grown already since the start of the, the year. 
but I can't quite get myself to think that the consumer won't eventually kick into gear um, if you keep giving these real income gains. Now, in terms of the incoming data, you know, Q3 already starts to look better in terms of actual consumer spending. Um, so that may be a first sign that something is, uh, is starting to stir. Um, but this is a tension in the forecast. I mean, based on the real income side, um, you know, to make things add up, I mean, I'm actually assuming that the saving rate keeps going higher. Um, so this is, in, in some sense, both a, a source of downside and, uh, and, and uh, an upside risk. Well, thank you, Greg. I was going to ask about that savings rate point until you mentioned it, the fact that in our baseline, the savings rate is still going up. I think that's a very important point to, to keep in mind. And when you think about the, the growth scenarios, as you say, both upside and downside risks, and current market pricing has a full 25 basis point cut by the ECB by April 2024. Um, now, in our scenario, in our baseline, we have uh, cuts starting in September 2024. So under what scenarios do you see something like the market pricing um, taking place relative to our, our baseline forecast? And could it happen under a soft landing scenario? Or would it have to be a recession where growth materially, materially starts declining? I mean, I, I think the risk is increasingly skewed to an earlier cut anyway. Um, but so I don't think you need a full-blown recession to, you know, to pull things forward. I think even if the economy stagnates, um, uh, which based on the PMI is what's what it's doing at the moment, um, if you stagnate for another three to six months, I mean, you know, the labor market should eventually start to feel some of that heat. Um and, and that would then in turn make the whole disinflation journey, you know, the famous last mile that uh, some ECB governors have spoken about, uh, more likely to be to be completed. Um, so even stagnation, I think, would pull it forward. I mean, could it be pulled forward to March without GDP contracting? Probably have a harder time on that one. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly June, I think, would, would very much be in play if the economy doesn't pick up. Um, but you know the the forecast that they they wait until September is really based on the idea that growth does actually improve. The PMI goes up another, you know, two and a half points or something from where it is at the moment. Um, you know, without wanting to put too much weight on that, uh, the PMI did rise a point in November, so that's kind of uh, better uh, with an upward revision in the final report. Um, so. The idea that they wait till September is based on the idea that growth does improve. Um, it's not just the consumer, but also German industry has looked odd. I think there's scope for that to uh, to do better than it has, uh, for example. Um, and corporates have been resilient um, through this uh, year of GDP stagnation. So I, I do think that overall things will click into gear. And then that will change the calculation a little bit, um, you know, based on the three tests that Lagarde has. The forecasts already are roughly where they need to be. Um, but if you have a growth pickup, you know, you do start to feel a little bit, I don't want to say wobbly, but, um, you know, a bit more balanced about the transmission side of things. And then you probably want to wait a bit longer to get evidence that wage growth is really turning. And I think that will take a bit more time to, uh, to show up in the data. To summarise, it's possible under a soft landing scenario to have earlier cuts, but the key will be to see what's really happening on the wage side and the services side. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think if, if uh, you know, what we had in the November inflation print is, is a pretty sharp 
decline in the in the monthly momentum. Um, we had eight months where we had stepped down to a three percent pace and were steady there. November was a step down, um, but I do think that it's it's hard to to have to have that disinflation and to have a continuation of those softer prints without the wage uh, side turning. And if the growth side holds up, then you probably want to see evidence of that happening. And just re related to that, what's your view on, on, on productivity and how important that is as part of the equation? Because obviously that will affect overall unit labour costs. And also on, on the corporate side, you, you alluded to it, but obviously one part is unit um, labour costs and another part is, um, is, is unit profits. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the, the forecast kind of on the disinflation journey has these um, sort of three phases. One is that transitory things related to the pandemic, supply chain effects and so on drop out. The second is that corporate pricing calmed down because we had these very big increases in uh, um, in uh, unit profits over the last year or two, um, which also act, uh, uh, you know, boosted the GDP deflator and general pricing uh, uh, pressures. Um, and then at the very end, you have a slowdown in terms of uh, in terms of wage growth. Now. If we have a bit of a pickup in productivity, that does help in terms of the third part of that. Um, so, but I'm, I'm quite agnostic here um, in terms of what productivity does. So the forecast has a return to something looking more normal after a very weak uh, few quarters, but without you know very big catch-up effect. So it, it supports the disinflation process, but you know I, I don't think at the moment it's a in the forecast it's a very big driver of it. Thank you, Greg. I mean, certainly that's one being one um, big contrast with the US, the poor performance of labour productivity in Europe in general relative to, to the US over the last year or so. Um, let's now turn to the to the UK and over to Alan. And um, let's talk about your recession call for the second half of 2024. What are your conviction levels in that call? And relatedly, how do you see the seemingly more entrenched structural inflation problems getting solved? It seems that obviously wage inflation is higher, services inflation is higher in the UK than uh, certainly in the euro area. So just be good to get your sense on that. Yeah, I mean, on, on the recession call, I mean, certainly nobody should have any real confidence trying to forecast the, the timing or the magnitude or even the precise trigger. Um, I've got, you know, for what it's worth, contraction in for the second half of, of next year. But really, the, the thinking behind that is more a sort of, broader feeling and an expression that I'm skeptical that uh, the Bank of England will be able to achieve a soft uh, landing in the UK. I mean, I'm, I'm not wedded to the precise timing of that recession. Maybe it's a little bit earlier, maybe it's a bit later. Um, but I do think there's you know some problems that are going to make the Bank of England's job uh, difficult. There's different ways that you can look at this. Um, the UK never had an inflation problem certainly not to the downside prior to, to the pandemic. So to the extent there has been a permanent shift higher in the inflation process since the pandemic, that's certainly, you know, not what the Bank of England wants to see. It's going to make the job harder. And I, you mentioned the supply side. I think that's particularly interesting in the UK. You can look at the impact of Brexit. You can look at uh, pandemic scarring. There's evidence that that's, uh, you know, weaken various aspects of the supply side, whether it's you know labour supply or very weak business investment, which feeds through to uh, to productivity. And I think I, I would probably say there's there's 
signs that trend growth in the UK may have slipped below 1% as a result of all of these things. So if that's correct and the UK needs sub-trend growth to deal with inflation and you're already starting from such a low level on trend, it's get, you, know, you can see how it could be difficult to achieve that balance without going negative on, on growth. Um, and, you know, sure, sure enough, inflation's come down sharply, but I don't think anyone should be looking at drop headline or even core inflation as a, a, a comforting signal that we're on a sustained path back to uh, to target if you look at services inflation in the uk is still very high um i think that's going to stay at least for the first half of, of next year and in my forecast that that will limit the scope for the bank of england to cut rates if you've got you know tight monetary policy which is persisting for longer uh, that increases the chance that we have a recession type dynamic i think and that would be ultimately controlling inflation you have to do it via demand if you can't do it via via supply no thank you alan and and related to this i mean you have obviously we have for the uk the latest policy rate cuts in, in western europe uh we have 50 basis points in the final quarter of 2024 now under what circumstances could you see the bank of england cutting rates earlier than that given some of the entrenched problems you mentioned on the supply side, et cetera. Is it possible they could end up cutting significantly earlier than that? It's possible. There's probably two routes that you get there that does happen. The first is that you see, you know, unexpectedly an improvement in supply. Uh, and it would have to be not just, you know, supply chains, gas prices falling, but domestic signs of supply improving. So the labor market looks like it's in uh, better balance that would bring inflation wage growth down more sharply it would give the bank of england a little bit more confidence i, I think if you saw something like that happening there would be a question of whether it's sustainable or not so I, I even in that scenario i still wouldn't see them cutting in the very near term um but if those positive signs were to continue to come and maybe it was part of a broader global trend that would give the bank of england more confidence then you could see it turning uh, towards earlier easing um, you know, possibly mid-year, maybe even a little bit earlier, uh, second quarter, if if the signs were strong enough. But I, th I think if we were to head down that route, um, the easing would be gradual in terms of the path. The second route by which you can have easing, is, I think, is on the growth side. If we were to see the UK slip into recession, I suppose people would see the people would see that as more likely in the UK case. I mean, certainly we had a big recession scare a few months ago. There's still a background risk of recession now. But if you look at the PMI, for example, I know it's not the, you know, the best indicator for the UK, but we were on 46 uh, for a brief moment, you know, three months ago. And then the latest data, we're now on 51. So which is consistent with easily, you know, positive growth. Um, and you've seen broader improvements in consumer business confidence, um, some of the labour market signals have, have stabilised as well. So it really, on that basis, it doesn't feel like we're on the brink of recession. I would say we've seen a stagnation recently, and I think I can see any signs of a, a recovery and growth in, into the into year end and into the early part of next year. And I echo some of the points that Greg has made. If you look at real income dynamics in the UK, they look pretty positive at the moment and i would expect that to generate some growth lift into the early part of next year so recession yes i have it in the forecast but it's late next year in the near term 
um, I'd say you know, the, the, the balance of risks has shifted in slightly more positive direction just recently. Okay, that's, that's, that's helpful. Now, maybe to get both your views, you and Greg, on, on the contrast between the UK and the euro area in the sense that we have a recession call for the UK, our boy in the frog scenario, but we have a softish landing for the euro area. Softish, I say, because growth is still weak. It's below potential in 2024. I think it only reaches potential of 1% in, in, in the first quarter of 2025. So both have had poor productivity performance over the last year, especially when you compare it to the US. Both have had a weakness in private consumption. Both have had a huge terms of trade shock. So what, what is causing the difference? Is it really just a supply hit? It's been much greater in the UK, partly because of other factors. Uh, maybe the re recovery from the pandemic has been a bit weaker, um, Brexit. Um, what, what to you explains the differences between the two? Maybe um, start off with Greg and then go to Alan. I mean, I, I, I suspect it's a bit of a, almost a bit of a cultural difference. I mean, Alan alluded to the signaling part of the, the, the recession that he ultimately thinks that you do need to boil the frog. Uh, whereas I went into this whole episode thinking, you know, the euro area has the luxury of having had very low inflation before the pandemic. So, um, you know, the kind of boil the frog scenario where the high inflation episode over the last couple of years unleashes you know, permanent changes in price and wage setting. I mean, when I think about that, I think, well, I need that. Otherwise, I'm going to go back to the 1% world eventually. Um, so, you know, when I look at the, the forecast, I think, well, the consumer can keep going or get going and then keep going for a bit. Um, corporates probably pause for a while. Um, but, you know, when they notice that the consumer is driving things for a bit, um, then they step back up again. Um, and, you know, as you go towards the latter, to the second half of next year, the, the prospect of, of uh, ECB cutting rates becomes much more uh, prominent. Um, and that improves most likely sentiment. It improves uh, um, credit conditions. Um, you know, it just takes some of those, those headwinds away. So for me, it would be a bit odd to, to pencil in a recession in the, in the second half of next year or even after that if we've survived the various shocks that we've already got through. Um, but as I say, I mean, you know, we are at a bit of a crossroads at the moment and it is a big judgment. Um, you know, the ECB has growth returning to 1.5% pace. The drivers I mentioned can easily give you minus 1.5%. So there's a massive range of of outcomes and you're really having to make a judgment about what you think these special post-pandemic, post-shock type dynamics are really worth. Um, but for me, if we get through the next few months, then there's actually scope for the recovery to be a bit more self-sustaining because inflation will come much better under control, cuts come back on the horizon and so on. Okay, thank you, Greg. Anything to add to that, Alan, from your side on, on the UK? No, I mean, I think, as I've mentioned before, there are some economic reasons for, for the differences. Um, you know, I've just discussed before, if you've got bigger structural issues in the UK, sticker inflation, more limited scope for the Bank of England to cut rates, then, you know, you have tighter policy that probably increases the chance of a recession at some point. I mean, I, Bank of England's made the point that We've only seen 25-50% of the uh, transmission of the current level of rates, and that's something that will build through time up to 100%. So, you know, I think the tightening in monetary 
policy in terms of its impact on growth has not been fully felt yet. That's a concern a lot of people have in the UK. But in addition to that, I think there are judgment differences between us. I mean, you have optimists and pessimists in life. Um, I, I've, I've been an optimist in the near term on the UK in terms of believing in the resilience view, um, but I'm a pessimist in terms of the structural longer term side. Um, and may, maybe Rick is a bit more on the cheerier side when it comes to the euro area. On that note, let's turn to Sweden a little bit because things aren't super cheery there, given the fact that Sweden seems to be in a recession. So maybe to Morden, what, what do you think are the main explanations behind Sweden's different um, um, performance? Uh, it also did recover pretty rapidly from the pandemic um, in comparison to other countries. And so obviously this correction needs to be taken, um, put in that light. Um, is it simply just a higher vulnerability to variable late rate loans and uh, relatively low wage growth? Or what, what do you think are the main factors at play for Sweden? Yeah, right. So I, I think those factors are, are a big part of the story. Um, the consumers have basically been hit by a plethora of airplanes. High interest rate sensitivity, nominal wages have, have been put on a lid, so to say, because of the strong norm around um, central wage negotiation. And then you've had inflation that's been higher than, than more or less everywhere else. So there has also been, you know, a very negative sentiment, low consumer confidence, and there has not been, um, there's not been any much willingness to to dip into these uh, uh, excess savings that are in place, in contrast to to what we have seen in Norway, that also has a high interest rate sensitivity. Um, so private consumption has been very weak in in Sweden, and but also other parts of, of the economy have taken a hit. Housing investment is a place where, well, we can almost call it ground zero. I think it's down 25% um, since, the, uh, since the fourth quarter last year. Um, and then finally, something I would point to perhaps a bit of an underappreciated driver is that fiscal policy has actually been contractionary, not because of vulnerable public finances. Um, Sweden has plenty of fiscal space, but the politicians have uh, basically tried to prioritize inflation, not adding fuel to, to the fire there. So fiscal frost has, uh, has been quite negative. Maybe just picking up on the one point you mentioned about the housing market and, and, the, and the massive decline we've seen in Sweden, which is in some ways unique to, to Europe. We Obviously, the US has had a big decline in residential investment, but and residential investment is correcting in other parts of Europe, but not to the same extent as we've seen in Sweden. So what's your view on commercial real estate and how big a risk that is to to the banking sector more generally the outlook in sweden i'd say it's a it's a pretty big risk i mean we do have a pretty significant refinancing round coming up in 2024 we do see profitabilities getting squeezed um so yeah i don't think we're out of the woods yet um that to say it's not like we are forecasting a big break here um if you look at the banking sector things you know they are still pretty well capitalized uh, do well on stress tests so it's hard to really say on, on a macro point of view, but it's, it is definitely a risk and it will continue to be uh, a, a concern going into um, yeah 2024, definitely. And maybe just in terms of your, your call on, on when the Riggs Bank will cut, we have the Riggs Bank cutting earlier than the ECB, um, I think in June, 2024. Um, how do you see it? Do you see, given the weakness we have in activity, what would it take for the Riggs Bank to to cut potentially early, given that services inflation also is still very high in Sweden, it's like similar to UK levels. Yeah, I, I think there is a 
a decent chance of them actually moving a bit bef before that. Um, going back just a couple of weeks, everybody thought my, my call was a bit <laughs> early in that sense. But I think with, you know, now it is official that Sweden is in recession. If you look at the labor market indicators, they are pretty clearly pointing to more weakness there. Um, and so I don't think you need that many down, downside surprises to core inflation before a rate cut in the spring might come into play. Um, and we also know from, you know, throughout the past that when the Riks Bank, um, they turn, they do it quite quickly. And, and you know, we got the minutes yesterday where we had some of the um, members there starting to say, well, maybe you shouldn't really trust the rate path that is saying that there's only going to be rate cuts in by the end of 2025. Maybe we need to look at some alternative scenarios where inflation falls a bit faster. So um, I do think there is a, a, a decent decent chance, so to say, of, of them moving, moving a bit earlier, in particular also if if we do get the Fed or is it be moving um, a bit before than, than what we have penciled in. I think on that note, we will we will end here. That's all we have time for. I hope uh, you, you found the discussion of the different trajectories for Western Europe useful and also the uncertainties around our, our policy rate calls, in particular the fact that um, yeah, there is obviously some scope for maybe earlier cuts than what we have, but also there are some scenarios where cuts could be potentially be later, although I think in general we do see the scope for earlier cuts as being a bit higher probability than, than later cuts. So in summary, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty which remains given the constellation of rare shocks that have buffeted Western Europe. But overall, given all the headwinds, it's really hard to see beyond the tepid growth uh, that we have in our baseline for 2024. Uh, and we certainly hope that private consumption will provide the support for that. This communication has been provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to this content and for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on December 5th, 2023.